Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. This morning, okay, so from God's Word. Let's open our Bibles to Genesis chapter 24. That's where we're going to be this morning, Genesis chapter 24. And as you're turning to Genesis 24, it's no surprise that Americans spend millions and millions of dollars every year on psychics, on mediums, on self-help books, going to therapists, going to counselors. They read the advice column religiously. They check their horoscope. They read the tea leaves. They listen to people like Dr. Phil, Dr. Oz, Dr. Oprah, whoever it is that you happen to listen to. We as a nation are a people who are desperately anxious and seeking guidance. People want guidance. People want direction. People want to know what's going on in their life, especially when it comes to the big areas. People are very anxious. They're very frustrated. They want to know what, what's the plan for my life in the big areas, like who am I going to marry, my finances, my future, my career, my job. And so, so many Americans live in stress. They live in anxiety. They, they live in uncertainty because they don't know the future, and they want advice. They want guidance. They want somebody, just tell me what the future holds. Tell me how to live. I need advice. But as Christians, we don't have to resort to these man-centered and sometimes ungodly avenues for seeking advice. We have a sovereign and powerful God who's given us his written word, a perfect treasure of God's truth without any mixture of error, fully written down for our direction, and he's also given us the Holy Spirit to live inside of us to guide us and to empower us. So, why are so many Christians Believers in Jesus Christ, so stressed out, so anxious, so worked up over their future. Why do we as Christians get stressed out, get fearful? Why are we so concerned about our future? Well, it's probably due to the fact that we're sinners. But here's what it's due to. We take our eyes off the sovereignty of God who cares about not only the big things in our lives, but the small things as well. So as we come to Genesis chapter 24, I have to tell you that it's the longest chapter in Genesis. So hold on, we're going to be here a while. No, I'm just joking. It is the longest chapter in Genesis. 67 verses. I've also made a choice to skip over Genesis 23. If you remember last week, we were in Genesis 22. Genesis 23 is pretty straightforward. Sarah, Abraham's wife, dies, and they bury her in 
the promised land. And if you remember from last week in Genesis 22, it was that defining moment in Abraham's life where after all these years they were waiting for Isaac, the son of the promise, this miraculous birth of Isaac, he's finally born, and then God does the unthinkable. He goes to Abraham and says, I want you to take your only son up on Mount Moriah, and I want you to sacrifice him to me. And Abraham does that. He passes the test, and the Lord provides a a ram in the thicket, which is a picture of, of Jesus being the substitute for our sins, that God did not spare Jesus on the cross, but offered him up for us to save us from our sins. And so now we come to Genesis chapter 24, and here's the huge question. Will God still be faithful to his covenant promise that he made to Abraham? Because remember what God said to Abraham, through Isaac, through your son, will the blessing come? Will the nations be blessed? And so God had made this covenant with Abraham, and the question is, okay, Abraham's old, he's at the end of his life, Isaac is is a grown man now, will Isaac die a bachelor? Or will Isaac get a wife, and will Isaac have kids, and will the promise go through to Isaac that God had promised to Abraham? And we find out that yes, God is faithful to his promise, and we see it unfold in this beautiful love story. This is a love story with some amazing plot twists. This is a romantic love story. It's a long story in the Bible, but what it shows us in very dramatic, very romantic, very almost like a Hollywood movie, God's faithfulness. So here's the main idea from Genesis chapter 24. It's the, it's the central idea that emerges from this chapter, and it's simply this. God is faithful to work out his sovereign purposes through both the small and big issues in our lives. God is faithful to work out his sovereign purposes in the small things and also in the big things in our lives. Now, this is a wonderful story in Genesis chapter 24. There's a lot of theology in this story. We see the mysterious hand of God in this story. We see the importance of prayer in the story. We see how God brings marriages together. So everything that you want to have in a, in a chapter, you've got it here. You've got a love story. You've got prayer. You've got the sovereignty of God. You've got marriage. And you've got some great characters. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to navigate us just through the text. I want us just to enjoy how Moses tells this story. And as we navigate through the story, I want to stop and pause and draw out some applications, draw out some implications, show you kind of some theological things that are going on. And basically what I want to show you is that God is sovereignly working out his purposes in the lives of of Isaac and Rebekah. And so we look at this and we realize as Christians we don't have to stress out. We don't have to be anxious. If, if, if you're anxious this morning, if you're stressed this morning, if you're uncertain this morning, I hope this passage of Scripture is a word of hope to you that God is sovereignly working out His purposes in your life, not just in the big things, but in the small things as well. So what I want us to do is I want to see this story unfold in five major scenes. There's five major scenes with five major characters. Now, there's one character that that goes throughout the whole, pretty much the whole story, but there's five scenes 
with five key characters, and I want us just to look at these scenes unfold. So the first scene we want to look at, we want to first explore the mature father Abraham in verses 1 through 9. Abraham's the main character, so let's read 24, 1 through 9. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand into my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. But you will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. Then the servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, To your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine, only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. This is really the last time we see Abraham until he dies in the next chapter. And he's an old man. And he's gone through numerous tests. We've spent weeks looking at the life of Abraham, haven't we? And how did Abraham start? Where did, where, did, where did the story start with Abraham? Back in Genesis chapter 12. And what did God tell Abraham? God came to Abraham and interrupted his life as a pagan and said, follow me. Pack up your family. Pack up your, everything that you, that you own and go to the land that I will show you. Go to the promised land. And that's exactly what Abraham does. And he's an old man, and he's living in the promised land. He's buried his wife, Sarah, in the promised land. And now he says, my son, Isaac, has to live here in the promised land. This is the land of promise. This is the place that God has given me. He can't go back to where I came from. But he's got to get a wife from back to where I came from. He cannot be unequally yoked and marry these pagan Canaanites. He can't take a wife from these pagan Canaanites around me. He cannot be unequally yoked. And so he knows that the servant needs to go to his kindred, go back to the land of his, of his parents, and find a wife for Isaac. Now, at the end of Abraham's life, he's matured. He's seasoned. He's wise. Think about the three episodes we've seen of Abraham when it came to marriage and children and, mar and, and how Abraham dealt with things. The first one was when he lied to Pharaoh about Sarah being his sister. Things went bad. The second one was when he went in with Hagar, the slave girl, and produced Ishmael out of self-reliance, out of trying to, to work things out in their own power, of trying to speed things up, getting off of God's timetable, and that caused dysfunction in the family with Sarah and Hagar. And then thirdly, he lies about Sarah, his wife, to King Abimelech. 
So three times in Abraham's life, when it comes to marriage, when it comes to children, when it comes to family, he's lying, he's manipulating, he's trying to work things out in his own power. But finally, at the end of his life, what does he do? Look at verse 7. What does he say to the servant? The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the hand of my kindred, who spoke to me and swore to me to your offspring, I will give this land. He will send his angel before you. I'm trusting God this time. I'm not going to manipulate a son for my, or a a wife for my son Isaac. I'm not going to take matters into my own hands. I'm not going to manipulate. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to finagle. I'm going to trust in the sovereignty of God. God will go before you, servant. God's angel will go before you. This is all about God, God's glory, God's providence. God's going to guide the process. I'm totally trusting in God guiding this process. I'm not going to manufacture the results. And it's, it's amazing that these are the last recorded words of Abraham. And it's fitting that the last recorded words of Abraham are, I'm doing it God's way. Because I've learned at the end of my life that that's the best way. I've learned the hard way. And so Abraham commissions his servant to go back to his homeland to get a wife for Isaac. Now, it's interesting Abraham's been evangelistic in his own household because, as we will see next, the servant, the servant has this amazing faith that can only be explained by the fact that Abraham passed this faith down in his household to his servant. He shared the gospel with this servant. So let's explore the second scene here. The second scene is the faithful, unnamed servant in verses 10 through 14. This is a man of God who acts nobly, who who has the faith of Abraham, and he doesn't have a name. We really don't know who his name is, but this man is amazing. So let's continue reading the story. Scene two, he goes back to the homeland to find a wife for Isaac. And what was he told? God's going to work it out. The sovereign, God's going to sovereignly send his angel before you. So let's, let's see the second scene unfold. Let's pick up in verse 10. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I'm standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you've appointed for your servant Isaac. By this... I shall know that you've shown steadfast love to my master. Now listen to his prayer in verse 12. This is a man that's been evangelized by Abraham, a man who has the faith of Abraham. 
He, he goes understanding the sovereign hand of God working this out. Notice his prayer in verse 12. Oh, Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success. Literal Hebrew, make it happen. Have you ever prayed those prayers before? God, make it happen. God, you, you've got to do this. You've got to show up in power. You, you've got to give me a sign. God, you've you got to make this happen. And notice what else he's praying for. He's appealing to God's steadfast love. It's that word, said. He understands God is a God of compassion. God is a God of covenant faithfulness. God is a God who never lets his people go. God tenaciously holds on with that loyal fidelity. And so this servant is praying, God, I'm totally trusting in your sovereignty. I'm totally trusting in your plan. I'm totally trusting in your love. You've got to make this happen. And so what's the, what's the plan here, God? The girl that comes out, and I say, can you give me a drink? She not only gives me a drink, but she waters all 10 of these camels. That's got to be the one, God. Please make it happen, because you're a God that can do the impossible. I'm trusting in you, God. I'm totally at your disposal, God. I'm not going to manufacture this. I'm not going to finagle this. I'm not going to be like my, my, my master Abraham who did this in the past. I'm totally trusting in you. Now, this unnamed servant's going to continue throughout the story, but let's look at the third character, the third scene, the virtuous bride Rebecca, in verses 15 through 28. So we've seen Abraham, we've seen the servant, now let's see Rebecca. This is the first time Rebecca emerges on the scene. And I want you to read this carefully. I want you to see how Moses the narrator unfolds the, the story here, and I'll help us as we go along, but, but just read this as an enjoyable, like you would read a, a love story or a novel or a mystery. Okay, here we go. Verse 15. Behold, before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahar, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in, in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a, a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, Ta-da! I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels and said, Please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? And she said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, We have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who's not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. Now, is this a coincidence? At just the right time. He's not even done praying. It's like, in Jesus' name, amen. He looks up, and who comes walking? 
Rebecca. She comes walking towards him to draw water. And yes, this servant believes in the sovereignty of God, but he's not passive waiting around. Is this the one? So he runs to her thinking this may be the divine appointment. This may be God's hand at work. This may just not be a coincidence. This may just be God doing something unseen. And and what I want you to do here is I want to draw your attention to Rebecca. We see some attributes in Rebecca that make her the appropriate wife for Isaac. Why is she the appropriate wife for Isaac? She's not a pagan Canaanite. It has to be someone from, his, from Abraham's kindred. Why does Rebecca fit the bill? Well, first of all, she's from the right family. She's not only from Abraham's homeland, she's the daughter of Abraham's nephew. She's Isaac's cousin once removed. So not only is she just from his homeland, she's from the right family. Secondly, she's beautiful. What does the text say? Right there in verse 16, the young woman was very attractive in appearance. Now, there's nothing wrong with being attracted to your wives, husbands. If we did not have a physical attraction to our wives, it wouldn't be as meaningful. And so Abraham uh, has been praying for this wife, for Isaac, and she's beautiful. She's from the right family. But thirdly, and most importantly, very importantly, she's a virgin. Look at verse 16. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. In other words, she had never had sex with anyone. She was a virgin. This is very important. Because this would ensure that Isaac would be marrying a pure bride and the lineage, the offspring of of Abraham would be intact. Let's just stop and talk about virginity for, for a moment. Virginity in our culture is something that's mocked. It's something that's laughed at. It's something that's ridiculed. You're made fun of in high school and maybe even middle school if you're still a virgin. And what God has designed for husbands and wives to come together on that wedding night and share that no other relationship can match is that they come together and be virgins. That's laughed at, that's mocked, that's trampled upon in our culture. So let me say a word to our youth today, to college students, to middle school students, to high school students, to anybody here that's not married yet. Save yourself for your future spouse. It's cool to be a virgin. Pastor Sean told you, okay? So if that's anything. But the Bible tells you that. The Bible tells you that it's a wonderful gift that God has given you to share with that one person who you'll spend the rest of your life with. Don't give that up. She's a virgin. Fourthly, she's hardworking. She's industrious. You know how she runs to get the water, and she feeds all ten camels. Do you know if you did the equivalent of how much it would, it would, water it would take to feed those ten camels? Some of you feed horses. 320 gallons of water to feed these ten camels, and she does it, and she's no slacker. She goes above and beyond the call of duty to work hard to feed these camels. And then fifthly, she's respectable. She's hospitable. She's kind. Look at verse 18. She calls him Lord. Drink, my Lord, 
she quickly let down her jar. She gave him a drink. Now, she wasn't required to feed the ten camels, was she? She wasn't even required to give the guy a drink. She could have said, who are you, stranger, and thrown a glass of water in him and walked off. But what does she do? She not only gives the servant a drink, but she says, I'm going to go above and beyond. Let me feed your ten camels. That's the sign, right? What what was he praying for? If she feeds me the water and feeds the ten camels, this is it. She's kind. She's respectful. She doesn't have to do that. Now notice verse 21. What's the servant doing? I love this little verse 21. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. He's sitting and he's waiting. And he's watching her. What's he waiting for? Her to finish the job. She could have just fed one camel and said, I'm out of here. He's sitting there waiting to see if she's true to her word, if she's a virtuous woman, if she's going to finish. What I want you to see here is that in little acts of kindness, God shows up in big ways. She had no idea, Rebecca did, that that man was there to, to, to ask her to marry Isaac and take her back to the promised land. She, she wasn't thinking that morning when she woke up, I'm going to go down to the well and put, up, put my best foot forward because I may meet my future husband there. She's not thinking that. It's simply her character. It's in her character already to be kind, to be compassionate, to be a virgin. And so just in a little act of feeding 10 camels, we think, well, that's not a big deal, but maybe it is, 320 gallons. In the little things that she's doing out of her character, God is orchestrating something big. It's a small thing. You see, in the small things that we do, that we may think this is not even part of God's plan, there's nothing, this is mundane, this is menial. In the small things that we do, God can be using those to fulfill his big things. So don't underestimate the small things that you do. Small acts of kindness. Small conversations. Small decisions. What did Jesus say in Matthew 10, 42? Whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is my disciple, truly, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Sometimes it's giving a cup of cold water in Jesus' name and a small act of kindness that God may be working behind the scenes to do something big that you may not even know. So how does God's providence work in this situation? Did God lay it upon the servant's heart to pray this specific way? Yes. Did God lay it upon Rebecca's heart to go down to the well and to feed those camels? Yes. Did either one of them know that the lines were going to cross? No. God worked in his heart, God worked in her heart, and he brought them together at just the right time. We sometimes call this a divine appointment. That's what providence is. You know what providence is? It's commonplace, everyday, small things that we do, but they happen in extraordinary timing to where God's weaving a tapestry behind the scenes to bring things together for his purposes. And we may be totally clueless. All we're doing is we're doing the small things. We're doing what God laid upon our hearts. And then God intersects paths and unfolds his will. So she completes the task. She's the one. He's the first one to know that she's the one. 
And so he gives her jewelry. He gives her goods. He says, hey, who's your dad? Can we go back to your house? I want to talk to your family. And she says, sure, let's go back. And then notice how he responds in verse 26. The man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord. Blessed be the Lord God, the master of my, of my master Abraham, who's not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, read it. What does the Bible say there? The Lord has led me in this way. The Lord has led me. The Lord has sovereignly worked out this in his divine way. God has sovereignly brought this about. I didn't finagle it. I didn't try to manufacture it. I just prayed and asked God to guide me, and God worked it out. It wasn't a coincidence. Listen to Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. God may straighten your paths. Our job is to acknowledge him, to trust in him, to listen to him, and then he will guide our paths. Here's a very encouraging passage of scripture, Ephesians 1.11. It's either encouraging or scary, depending on how you take it. I take it as an encouragement. Ephesians 1.11. In him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works out all things according to the counsel of his will. God works out all things according to the counsel of his will. The big things, the small things, the in-between things, God works out everything according to the counsel of his will. So we've seen Abraham in his old age. We've seen the servant. We've seen Rebekah. Scene four, we're introduced to a shady character. In this fourth scene, the greedy brother Laban in verses 28 through 61. He's going to be a controversial person in the rest of Genesis. Now, before I read this, I'm not going to read all of this because it's repetition. And you may ask the question, well, why, does, why is half this chapter a repetition of the story that we just read? I mean, basically, we're gonna, if you read it, it's a repetition of what we just read. And you're like, I just read this. Why am I reading it again? Two reasons. Number one, Genesis was originally an oral book before it was written down. It was meant to be transmitted orally from generation to generation. And so there's repetition in Hebrew narrative so that the next generation can remember these stories. But secondly, it's repeated because the servant has to persuade Laban and Rebekah's parents that God has indeed orchestrated this, so he's got to give his case. He's got to retell it to them so that they know the story. So let's pick up in verse 29. Rebekah had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out toward the man to the spring as soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and heard the words of Rebekah, his sister. Thus the men spoke to me. He went to the man. And behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. He said, Come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels. And there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. And the food was set before him to eat. But he said, I will not eat until I've said what I have to say. He said, speak on. So from verses 34 all the way down to verses 50, it's a retelling of what we just heard. So I'm not going to read that because it's a retelling of what we just heard. Pick up in verse 50. Then Laban and Bethuel, that's Rebekah's father, answered and said, The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go. Let her be the wife of your master's son. 
as the Lord has spoken. When Abraham's servant heard the words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. And the servant brought out jewelry of silver and of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave them to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. When they arose in the morning, he said, Send me away to my master. And her brother and her mother said, Let the young woman remain with us a while, at least ten days. After that she may go. But he said to them, Do not delay me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. They said, Let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebekah and said to her, Will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. So they sent away Rebekah, their sister and her nurse, and Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Then Rebekah and her young woman arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went on his way. Now we're introduced to Laban. Laban is Rebekah's brother. And he shows up as a greedy con man. As you will find out later on when Jacob has to go work for Laban. All Laban cares about is this guy's loaded. I'm going to go out and meet this guy because this guy's loaded. He's got ten camels. I see the jewelry on my sister's arms. Why don't you come on in, brother, and we'll talk a little bit. So the only thing he really cares about is the fact that this guy's loaded. Now the servant tells the story. Now, we didn't read that, but he basically tells what we've just read. God came before me. There was this chance meeting at the well. It was really God's hand of providence. Rachel fits the bill. She's everything we've been praying for. Uh, she, she, God has brought her together. Uh, my, my master Abraham, you're part of the same family. Can she come back and marry Isaac? And what do they say? That, that they have no argument. In verse 50, they say, this thing has come from the Lord. They recognized that it had come from the Lord. They had no argument. They believed God's sovereign hand is all over this. This is the providence of God. Now, let's think about the providence of God for a moment. We may not always understand it. When God does weird things or God does sovereign things or God orchestrates things behind the scenes and God brings divine appointments or things happen that we just can't explain, we may not fully be able to rationally understand it, but we've got to accept that God is the one that's doing it and he's doing it for a purpose. Just because you don't understand what he's doing doesn't mean that you don't accept it. I always plead Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine if I don't know. The secret things belong to the Lord, our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do the words of this law. There are some secret things that we may never know that God is doing. And God is working behind the scenes. And God's sovereign, invisible hand of providence is guiding, is directing, is orchestrating, is maneuvering. God is, is working out all the details behind the scenes. And sometimes we're clueless. And when these things happen, we really can't explain it. We just have to rest in the fact that God is sovereignly working out his purposes. And that's what these men do. Obviously, this is the sovereign hand of God. But yet there's a glitch. It may be the sovereign hand of God, but we're going to make her wait 10 days. That's what they say. Let's let her wait 10 days. And the servant's like, come on. I've come all this way. I've been praying to the Lord. Don't delay me. She's the one. I've got to take her back to Abraham. And they say, okay. And there's one final glitch. There's this moment of truth. All the pieces have been fitting into place. Abraham says, an angel will go before you. The angel went before him. 
there's going to be this quote-unquote chance meeting at the well where Rebecca just happens to walk up at just the right time. She fits the bill. She's got the, she, she's, she, she, she fits the bill to a T. Her parents have given her permission to go back. But there's one last bit of, of information that the servant needs. They drop a bomb on him. What do they say? That's all fine and good, servant, but let's let her be the final decision maker. Let's ask Rebecca if she wants to go. Look down there in verse 57. They said, let us call the young woman and ask her. Now, if you're the servant, you're probably thinking, oh my goodness, what if she says no? What if she says, I'm not traveling a thousand miles back to marry a guy I've never met to a people that I've never heard of, to leave my family, to leave my friends, to leave everything? Let me just ask you, young women, would any of you go a thousand miles away to marry a guy you've never met and leave everything that you thought was valuable to go marry this guy? Any takers? So the choice is up to Rebecca, and she could very easily say, "Uh uh-uh, I'm not going to do that. There's no way. But what's her answer? Verse 59, one word in the Hebrew. I will go. Literally, I want to go. I want to go. Rebecca's faith here is matching Abraham's faith. Remember when God called Abraham and said, leave everything, leave your family, leave your goods, leave all your possessions, and go to the land I will show you. And Abraham got up and left. What is Rebecca doing now? She's matching the faith of Abraham. She's leaving everything, her friends, her family, her life, to get up and go to the land of promise to meet this second cousin that she's never met before to marry him. She's an amazing woman of faith. And she submits herself to God's sovereign hand. She realizes that this is God's plan, this is God's purpose. I'm going to pack up and I'm going to take, I'm going to go back with this, with this servant that I just met and I'm going to get on these 10 camels that I fed and, and, and I'm going to take my, my nurse with me and we're going to go back and meet this Isaac dude. So scene five, what happens when she gets back and meets this Isaac dude? What happens if he's ugly? What happens if he's a jerk? What happens if I, what if she gets back and she's like, I came all this way for him? All right, let's see the final scene. The praying husband in verses 62 through 67. Now, Isaac had returned from Ber Lahai Ra'i and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes. And when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. What's the first image that we have of Isaac as an adult in Genesis? Last week he was a child, right, being bound by Abraham on Mount Moriah. What's the first image we have of him as an adult? What's he doing? He's out in the desert praying. 
He's a praying man. He's meditating. He's praying. We have no idea what he's praying about. Maybe he's sad that his mother died. Maybe he's praying for a wife. God, just give me a wife. Please just give me a wife. He looks up and there's the wife. I mean, who knows what he's praying for? It doesn't say. All we know is that this scene unfolds in slow motion like a, moment, like a movie. Can you picture it? Isaac lifts up his eyes and he sees the caravan coming and there's the string music and he walks a little closer and she lifts up her eyes and she looks at her nurse and says, is that him? Is that him? That's, that must be him. <laughs> and the music gets to the crescendo and her eyes meet his eyes and then she gets, the, the, the text doesn't tell you but she literally falls off the camel. I mean, the, the, the Hebrew is a little strong. She, she's so excited she kind of falls off the camel and she comes and she covers herself with the veil and that's the chance meeting. Now, we don't know what the servant told the woman, Rebecca, as they were traveling that thousand miles, but I'm sure over and over again, she's probably hunting, what's he like? What's his favorite food? What's his favorite color? What's he like? She's probably like grilling the servant. And so finally, they meet. And in this act of modesty and purity, as this virgin bride, she covers herself in modesty and presents herself to Isaac. Now, the text doesn't say there was a wedding ceremony, but I believe probably there was. But we do find out that Isaac brings Rebekah into the tent of Sarah. Rebekah has now replaced Sarah as the matriarch. And it says he loved her. Isaac is different from his dad. And Isaac is different from his son, Jacob. Abraham loved two women, Sarah and Hagar. Jacob loved two women, Rachel and Leah. Isaac was a one-woman man. He only had eyes for Rebekah. And it's said there that he was comforted. This is a picture of two godly people, a man praying and a virgin bride coming together in a God-ordained marriage. God ordains marriages and brings people together. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 19, 4 through 6. Jesus is answering the Pharisees. He says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said to them, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So if you're not married here today yet, you're a young person, don't stress out over your future mate. God's got it under control. God is sovereign over your future spouse. Let me just give you a very powerful statement if you're not married yet. Instead of looking for the right person to marry, instead start being the right person to marry. Did you catch that? Instead of looking for the right person to marry, be the right person to marry. So we can learn a lot from this text about how to prepare for marriage. So if you're preparing for marriage, or you're a teenager, or a young college student, or a young adult, and you want to think, what's God's plan for marriage? There are four things from this story that tell you how you prepare for marriage. Number one, pray earnestly for God's plan to be fulfilled. Start praying now for your spouse. Start praying now for your future spouse. Start praying that God's will will unfold. Pray earnestly for your marriage. Number two, prepare by being a virgin. 
Prepare by not giving yourself to somebody right now, but saving yourself for your future spouse. Number three, start preparing by living a life of godliness where you serve others in the small things. Rebecca served in the small things. Isaac was a man of prayer. And then lastly, prepare by trusting God to sovereignly bring you your future spouse. Now, if we were to go around the sanctuary today and ask every married couple how you met, we'd probably have a lot of different stories, wouldn't we? But probably the one theme that we would have is every married couple would probably say, when we look back, we didn't understand all what was going on, but we know God brought us together. God brought us together. It was God's plan. Now, some of you, God may call to singleness. I think there's a gift of singleness that God calls people to. And if God has called you to singleness, he will give you the grace to be able to remain single. Either way, whether you're single or whether you're married, God is sovereign over this situation. So don't be passive. Just because God is sovereign, don't be passive. Prepare yourself now for your future wedding. Now, Rebecca is a source of comfort for him. After his mother's death, Sarah's death, I'm sure Isaac's brokenhearted that his mom died. Now, Abraham's still alive, but there's something about your mother dying that that, that wounds the soul because she's the woman that gave birth to you. And so Isaac is, 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 is distressed, but then it says that Rebecca has come and has comforted him. She emerges as the new matriarch of the family. She's now taken Sarah's place. So Rebecca is crucial to the story of God's plan of redemption because if there's no Rebecca, there's no Jesus. There's no Rebecca, there's no Jesus. So I want to ask you in the end, who's the hero of the story? Who's the hero of the story? Is it Abraham that learned his lesson at the end of his life that was so wise? Was it the servant who trusted in the sovereignty of God and, and prayed for God's direction? Was it Rebecca who was a virgin and who was pure and who was, who was godly? Was it Isaac who was praying and who was prepared? In the end, who is the hero? Now, these people may be models of godly character, and we can learn from that. But the hero of the story And the hero of every story is the living God through Jesus Christ, his son. This entire story is about God being faithful to his promises and his sovereign plan to make sure in his sovereignty that Rebecca and Isaac would meet and marry so that eventually Jesus Christ would be the Messiah. It's God's faithful plan. He's the hero of the story. All this is about the sovereign working of God bringing about his plan to ensure that he's faithful to his purposes. So no Rebecca, no Jesus. So are you trusting in this type of God? A God who is sovereign over the big things of your life, a God who's over the small things of your life, but a God who's powerful enough to send Jesus Christ to save you from your sins and to give you some amazing promises like that your sins will be forgiven, that you will have a new identity in Christ, that you will have um, a new heart, that you will have a home in heaven. Are you trusting in Christ to be faithful to his promises? Because the Bible says, That the promise from Jesus is that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a promise you can bank on this morning. If you're here today and you've never called upon the name of the Jesus to save you, call upon his name and he is faithful to that promise to save you. So the story may be about prayer. 
The story may be about marriage. It may be about how to get direction. There's a lot of things going on in the story, but ultimately it comes back to God is faithful. God is sovereign. God is powerful. God is faithful in his power to save his people from their sins through the Messiah, Jesus Christ, in his death, in his burial, and in his resurrection. And one of the themes that keeps coming through this chapter is that the servant keeps praying is, Lord, show your steadfast love. Lord, show your steadfast love. I've seen your steadfast love. I've experienced your steadfast love. So have you this morning experienced the steadfast love of Jesus for sinners? That love that comes to you and says, I don't care how wicked your sin is. I'm going to die for that sin. And I'm going to reach you out of your depravity and out of, your, uh, out of the sewer of your, of your sin. And I'm going to set you on a solid rock. And I'm going to clean you up. And I'm going to give you a new heart. And I'm going to take your sin as far as the east is from the west. And I'm going to bring you eternal life. That's the promise. Jesus has to sinners. Are you trusting in that? Have you repented of your sins and have you trusted in this Savior who's powerful, who's true to his promises, who's big over the the big things in your life and is big over the small things in your life? Do you believe in a big God? This Palm Sunday begins Holy Week where we will spend this week thinking about and meditating upon what all Christ experienced during this week. The betrayal, the scourging, the beating, the crucifixion, and eventually next Sunday, the resurrection. And so as we think about Easter Holy Week, this Palm Sunday, I thought it would be fitting to start this Holy Week by just meditating and praising God that He's in control and that you don't have to stress out. Listen to the words of 1 Peter 5, 7. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. If you're here this morning and you've got an anxiety, and don't raise your hand because I'm sure all of us have an anxiety this morning. Do you realize the gravity of this promise? That you can just throw that on Jesus. You can just just throw it on Jesus. He's big enough. He's strong enough. He's powerful enough to take whatever care you have and to work it out for your good through his power because he's faithful to his promises. So would you cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you? And how did he most show his care for you? in his death, burial, and resurrection from the tomb. So let's praise him for being a God who's not just in charge of the big things like eternal life, yes, but even in the small things like what decision you have to make this afternoon. He's sovereign over the big things. He's sovereign over the small things because he cares. Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. Maybe this morning you're faced with the big thing, Or maybe you're faced with a small thing. And you've got anxiety. You've got concern. You've got stress. You've got uncertainty. Would you just trust the promises that we've seen from this passage of Scripture today that God is in control and that God cares and that God is big 
and that God can orchestrate things behind the scenes that we may not even be aware of to, to bring about his sovereign purposes. And, and, and our job is just to be faithful to pray and to, and to be faithful in the small things. So would you this morning just spend some time casting all your cares upon him because he cares for you. So I'm going to ask us to do that. In this time of silent prayer, would you cast or throw or give your anxieties to Jesus with the promise of the gospel that he cares for you and he can take it. So spend some time casting your cares on Jesus this morning. Father, I don't know what all is on the hearts and minds of everybody in this room. But I know that we live in a world of stress. We live in a world of anxiety. We live in a world where there's big decisions that have to be made. And world, Lord, where there's, there's small things. And so I just pray this morning, Lord, that we would cast all of our anxieties upon you, Jesus, because you care for us. Lord, I just pray a special prayer this morning for those young adults, teenagers, college-age students that are within those few years of getting married. That they would look at this story from your truth and realize how to prepare for marriage. They would be people of prayer. They would be people of purity. They would be people of, uh, of understanding your providence. They would be people who are, just have character. Instead of anxiously looking for the right person to marry, they'd be the right person. And God, you would sovereignly bring that spouse to them in your timing. Father, if there's anybody in this room that doesn't have a relationship with your son Jesus, they're lost. They don't have the hope of eternal life. Would they see this morning their greatest need? is to cast the care of eternal lostness onto you, Jesus, and find your arms open wide to save, that they would repent of their sins and believe in you alone as Lord and Savior. So would you save lost people this morning? Thank you for being a big God. We don't want a small God. We don't want a God that looks like us. We want a transcendent, holy, powerful, sovereign God that can do all things according to the counsel of his will. In the big things and in the small things. May we receive mercy and grace this morning. And may we leave this place knowing that, Jesus, you care for us and that we can cast all our cares upon you. We pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.